tonight. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And joining me this morning is Rutgers University Professor of Public Policy, Jocelyn Elise Crowley, PhD, and author of Gray Divorce, What We Lose and Gain from Midlife Splits. Due to the aging baby boomer, Generation, one out of every four divorces are people over the age of 50. This startling rise in the dissolution of marriages is alarming and should be a wake-up call to our political leaders to address this problem. Dr. Crowley spoke with men and women whose lives were completely transformed in the aftermath of their gray divorces, asking them such questions as why they got a divorce, how their finances were affected by the divorce, and how their social relationships changed. Dr. Crowley is featured in the Huffington Post, Forbes.com, and the New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jocelyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, in your research and the people that you interviewed, many men and women, I guess 40 men, 40 women, um, my first question is, what were some of these reasons for getting divorced? What are the contributing factors for getting divorced over the age of 50? Yeah, so I interviewed 40 men and 40 women, and just to start out, I would like to say they weren't married to each other or formerly married to each other. They had just gone through a great divorce or a divorce over the age of 50. You know, when I initially started thinking about this, I thought that this is the baby boomer generation and that they were going to give me a lot of reasons having to do with oh, I just wanted to find myself, I wasn't happy, I fell out of love, sort of this me-generation idea about self-fulfillment and that they were no longer experiencing that in their marriage and therefore they decided to seek out a divorce. What was really surprising was while I got some of those reasons from the men and the women that I spoke with, much more commonly, um, I heard about traditional reasons for getting a divorce. And by traditional, I mean men and women who either were engaging in self-destructive behaviors that were ultimately destructive to their marriage or their spouses were engaging in destructive behaviors um, that ultimately led to the failure of the marriage. So, there were some commonalities between the men and the women, and there were a lot of differences in terms of the reasons that they offered. So let's talk about some of the commonalities and the differences in the genders, like there were different reasons for men in terms of wanting to get a divorce as opposed to women. So what were uh, some of the things, the reasons that were the same? Let's start with sure. that. Sure. So, yeah. yeah, first off, the same was I did get a little bit of that baby boomer, you know, oh, um, we just grew apart So for both men and women. So one man said to me, you know, I... I met my wife, I gave her the most romantic proposal in Paris, and when we came home, I continued to further my education, and she didn't, and she had no interest in my educational pursuits. So after a period of time, we just simply grew apart. So that was common between men and women. Um, Adultery is always, always, always a theme. Now, this could be short-term affairs. This could be um, long-term affairs. It could be serial adultery. Um, One woman told me in in her interview that she found a hotel receipt um, from um, a local hotel, and she said to me, I'm pretty sure I wasn't there at the time in her husband's jacket. So that told her that something was off. And then the third reason that was common 
between both men and women was this idea of mental health and mental health issues. Now, some of them were fairly sure that their wives or their husbands had some type of mental health disorder that, and it was being treated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but somehow it wasn't getting better. And then in other cases, the men and the women said that they guessed that their wives or their husbands had some type of mental disorder, but it wasn't um, diagnosed. So one man, for example, told me that his wife suffered from a serious depression. She ultimately did get um, on an antidepressant, but that particular antidepressant wasn't working for her. Um, And then so he kept encouraging her to go back to the doctor to try another medicine, and she refused. So over a period of time, he felt that he was carrying the entire load of the relationship, and he knew that at some point he needed to get a divorce. There were also differences between the men and the women, and this is where I think things got really, really interesting. So the men talked a lot about the way things were being done in the marriage. So they didn't like the way, for example, money was being spent. They often accused their wives of what they called financial infidelity. So they would get a credit card bill at the end of the month, and it would be for thousands of dollars for a pocketbook that they didn't know that their wives, you know, bought. Or their wives were covering up, you know, other types of financial dealings that they didn't know about. The men also interestingly talked about discipline, that they in particular thought their wives were too lax. Now, at the time of their divorce, most of these people had children who are now adults. So to carry this resentment through, you know, for another 20 years or so prior to a divorce is something, but they often felt that their wives were not doing enough to discipline their children and that this caused a lot of conflict. Can I ask you what happened, because you taught, you sort of alluded to that, there is kind of this evolution. It didn't happen, obviously, all at once, because we're talking about gray divorces. So over the past 20, 30 years, let's say, this behavior on both sides, this behavior that one of the spouses didn't like, was evolving. Did any of the, because they've had 20 years or 30 years going through this, did they ever see themselves as, somewhat responsible or that they could have, you know, mitigated some of this behavior if they had discussed it with their spouses or did they take any responsibility? I guess I, that that's my question. Yeah. You know, what was really interesting is that they did talk about most of these cases were 20, 30, even 40 years of marriage. And they talked about these problems and most of them talked about taking multiple years to try to address them, you know, whether that be talking to their spouse, whether that be, you know, trying to go to therapy. Um, If their spouse wouldn't go, they would go to individual therapy to try to work it out, to try to figure out what they could do to save the marriage. So it wasn't like that they were walking away. In the majority of cases, they had worked long and hard on their marriages, and only after decades did they decide that this wasn't going to work out. You know, the women um, offered other reasons for a divorce, and these were quite disturbing. So one of them was emotional and verbal abuse. So this was unlike the men. So one woman told me that she brought in a daughter from a previous relationship into the marriage, and the daughter was a little bit uh, overweight. And the new husband was so controlling that he ultimately padlocked the refrigerator so that she would not get into the refrigerator. So clearly that was a breaking point for the woman in the relationship. 
Um, and then also, and I think this is such an important reason to discuss in 2018, the women talked about addictions, their husband's addictions, whether that be to drugs, alcohol was a very common addiction, but most commonly I heard about pornography addictions, internet pornography addictions, that their husbands were so addicted and that they no longer gave them any attention, whether that be physical or emotional, um, and so ultimately they felt that they were being cheated upon every single moment that their husbands viewed this internet pornography. Well, that's something new, obviously. That's a very, I mean, we can focus on that because that is a new topic. Yeah. And I, I and I don't know, I mean, you're the uh, psychologist. Like, how do you deal with that? I mean, what would one do? Uh, it, right. Because it's, it's always a... Well, obviously, you know, your computer is always available. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so, yeah, what I found was that, so for some of these men, you know, they got married a long time ago, right? So all of my, all of the people um, that I spoke to when, you know, they got married, these were heterosexual marriages, okay? So these weren't gay marriages or lesbian marriages. This was a long time ago. So for some of the women, they said that they ultimately found out that their husbands were actually gay because they found them being attracted to pornography on the Internet, gay-oriented pornography, right? Now, others um, found out that they were just addicted to heterosexual pornography. And I remember in one case, a woman told me that she saw this behavior with her husband, and, you know, she brought it up to him and said that she couldn't live with this anymore. Um, And I'm trying to remember, he might have been a case where it might have been gay pornography. So ultimately they went to a therapist and the therapist said, you know, you've got to stop doing this to the husband. She feels cheated upon. And they got home and then one day the husband said, I'm going to move the family computer from the living room to the garage. (laughs) And so you know when you're moving the family computer from the living room where everyone can see it to the garage, you're probably still, you probably still are addicted to pornography. And so one day she did indeed find him again. Her, uh, the wife did indeed find him again and looking at it, and she ultimately could not take it anymore. So, I mean, I think that this is a really interesting change. We would sort of expect this, right, among younger people in the United States, but the fact that this is a, a problem that's affecting marriages age 50 and older, I think it's really something serious that we need to look at and, and to consider because it is affecting marriages. It is breaking them apart. Actually, I would kind of differ with you. I would think I would expect it more in that older age group because it doesn't uh-huh. take quite as much stamina or, you know, you don't have to go <laughs> running around to hotels or go out to eat or do whatever you do to have Your an affair. This makes funny. it pretty easy. <laughs> you expend a lot less energy. So, uh, I, right. you know, I can really... Yeah, see it happening. One of the things, though, you also talk about in the book, because we've been kind of, this is in social work vernacular, but those are, I don't know if you would call them micro reasons, but you give an overall, some of the contributing reasons just in terms of our society for these uh, gray mar- uh, gray divorces, uh, life expectancy. And that sort of fits into what you're talking about. Because if you're going to have to live with this stuff for 90 years, people sit back and say, you know, I have another 40 years to go at age 50, maybe, or even 30 years. I don't think I want to do this for the next 30 years. Absolutely. Uh, where, yeah. 
Absolutely. So, yeah, so the macro level reasons about why this is all happening is, first of all, just simply the aging of the baby boomer generation, right? So we just have millions and millions of more people crossing that age 50 threshold every year. So simply because of the numbers, we're going to see more great divorce. You nailed it, you know, when you talked about life expectancy. In 1950, the average man lived to 65 and the average woman lived to 71. Now the average man lives to 76 and the average woman lives to 81. So that's just a lot more time to think about divorce and to think about what you want out of your life. And then lastly, I would say, the uh, cultural stigma around divorce is really, really withered away. You know, I was growing up, I grew up as a kid during the 1970s, and there was still a lot of stigma associated with the divorce. And my parents got divorced in the 1970s, and I remember one of my friend's mothers told my mother that I could no longer play with her daughter because I came from a broken home. And so you do not see that at all or as quite as much, especially with the advent of no-fault divorce in the United States. You don't see the stigma. So those are the three main sort of macro-level reasons why we see the evolution of gray divorce and expansion of gray divorce in the United States today. Well, you talk about, you know, this is this shift uh, to uh, personal satisfaction, whereas you got divorced. Uh, I mean, when you got married, uh, say, 50 years ago, you got married to the right family. You got married to someone who's going to be able to take care of you in the case of a woman. All of those kinds of things. Practical reasons. We don't, those kind of, some of those practical reasons, of course, have gone by the by. Women work. They can support themselves. Sure, sure. Uh, Also, getting back to the computer, I think that couples, and I don't know if you found that with these 40 men and 40 women, but... They have access to all kinds of information about how other people live. And it's sort of like, well, I deserve that. I don't deserve to live with someone who's going to be, well, let's take some of the mental illnesses you talked about, bipolar for the rest of my life and trying to take care of someone who refuses treatment uh, because there's other stuff out there. And I can see it. There is. There is. You know, I I found that also... Facebook, you know, uh, some people talk to me about Facebook, and I, I have to admit, I, 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 I think this about myself sometimes, and I think this is actually shown in some of the psychological research on that Facebook oftentimes makes you feel worse about yourself, because what do people do on Facebook? They present the best face, right? The best side of themselves, that, that they're going out, they're having all of this fun, I remember one man I spoke with said his wife went on Facebook. She saw all of her friends from high school. She saw how great they looked, how, what a fabulous time they were having, and she decided that she wanted to start to go back to the old bars, the old haunts where everyone was, and that she really wanted to have relive those high school days, you know, and ultimately they got a divorce. So social media, I think, is really, really important. You know, we look at other people's lives and we think that they're better, but we have to keep in mind always that people are presenting this one side of their life where everybody has problems, everybody has things to contend with, and Facebook often doesn't present those multiple sides. So what do we do about that? Because, I mean, this is here to stay. We are going to have access to Facebook or, uh, you know, social media, and and we'll only have access to more different 
kinds of social media. So in terms of public policy, I mean, which is your area of expertise, obviously, how do we address this? Or are we just sort of first becoming aware that these kinds of problems exist? Maybe marriage itself, the institution of marriage has to change rather than the individuals, that the expectations will change. You're not going to have like George and Barbara Bush, for instance, or right, uh, just, right, we've yeah. got this long and beautiful marriage. You know, in terms of social media, I do my part by posting bad things that happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to I try to mix it up a little bit. Um, in terms of public policy, in the book, I talk about basically what we need to be aware of for men and women as they go through this divorce. So I'm mostly focused on the consequences of gray divorce, not necessarily how we might go about preventing it. Um, You know, we need to be realistic, of course, in our expectations of marriage going in. But in terms of coming out of marriage, I argue that men and women face very different penalties when they come out of a divorce. Women, it's primarily what I call an economic grade divorce penalty. Women are the ones who take time out of paid work to to have children, to raise children. And during that time, they're losing, you know, um, the race um, in terms of making money. They're not making money. They're not contributing money to their savings account, to a pension, to a 401K. They're also seriously not contributing money to the Social Security system. And ultimately what this ends up happening is, you know, when men and women ultimately retire, men take home an average of $18,000 a year in Social Security benefits, and women take home $14,000 a year in Social Security benefits. And so what I really look at and what I really recommend for women in the book is, first of all, prior to retirement, educating young people, especially in public schools, about the importance of financial planning, teaching kids about saving, teaching kids about retirement, teaching kids that they can't live on Social Security alone is a critical thing that we need to be aware of. I also think that having policies in place that keep women um, on par with men economically, like having paid maternity leave in the United States, which we don't have, um, so that women can return to work and not lose out income-wise while they're taking care of their children. And then post-retirement, you know, my big deal is Social Security reform. And the Social Security benefits formula is very, very complicated. But one of the things, the components that goes into it is for every year that you, it's calculated on your top 35 years of earnings, but for every year you're spending at home taking care of your child, Social Security puts a zero into that formula. So women are getting lots of zeros putting into, put into that formula, whereas men are not. And that's dragging down their benefit level overall. So I highly recommend that we do something to reform the formula so that women don't get zeros put into their system um, for Social Security benefits. And then for men, I really want to emphasize that men don't leave a grade divorce unscathed. Um, They face what I call a social grade divorce penalty. And what that means is during the marriage, the wives are predominantly the ones who plan outings, plan family events, go plan um, excursions with other couples. And when the family actually breaks up, excuse me, and the divorce goes through, the father doesn't have anyone. <laughs> the man doesn't have anyone to turn to. His social life is shattered. 
So we really need to think a lot about strengthening men's ties to their friends, offering them support, offering them support groups so that they can go um, out and actually express their feelings about their divorce. And so they do have strong social supports after such an event as a gray divorce. Do you find after the gray divorce that uh, men and or, and, well, separately, I guess, men tend to get married again or they stay single or women, what do they do? In my experience, and this is just anecdotal, but it's that women do maybe not financially, but emotionally, as you say, and socially, they're better when they get divorced. They do pretty well and that they are... <laughs> Tend to, at least the studies I've seen, they tend to be happier, adjust better because they're connected to their children or their grandchildren or their girlfriends, kind of in line with right. what you're saying, and don't feel the need to get married again, whereas men are looking for somebody usually younger who will take care of them. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. So women have strong social supports, and oftentimes adult children tend to side with the mothers after a gray divorce. So what we find is that after a great divorce, I asked all the people I spoke with, I said, you know, would you ever consider getting remarried? Overwhelmingly, the women said, not a chance. I don't want to be a caregiver again. I don't want to take care of anyone. I, I find my financial independence, my freedom, my, the ability I have to live on my, loan makes, uh, on my own makes me so happy. I don't want to do it. You know, other women said that they would do it, but only if they could sort of renegotiate patterns of, you know, who takes care of what in a marriage going forward. And only the smallest number of women said, yeah, I definitely want to do that again. The men, completely the opposite. The majority of them really wanted to get remarried right away. They wanted companionship, they told me. They thought it was part of God's plan that they be with somebody else. So they talked about that. Um, Some men said that they would only do it under certain circumstances, like finding a partner with certain characteristics that were similar to their own. And then only the smallest number of men said, no, I won't do it again. It was too much of an emotional upheaval. Okay, what about caregiving? Um, Because, you know, we talked about in the beginning of the uh, conversation, we were talking about how life expectancy has increased. So as it increases, we live longer, but we also, and we live healthier, but we also live sicker. So you're expected to, if you're with somebody, uh, you know, for 40 or 50, 60 years, that person probably in that lifetime, uh, well, in that period of time will get sick. And then you're expected, the spouse is expected to take care of them. How does, I mean, you talked about mental illness, but what about physical illness? Absolutely. So what we see now is, yeah, with increased life expectancy, people are going to need care. And oftentimes women supply care to their husbands while they're both alive. Um, Men have a shorter life expectancy, so oftentimes women outlive them. And then what we end up having is a society where we have nursing homes where the majority of residents are who? They're women, okay? And so we end up providing institutional care for women because their spouses, either they might not have a spouse or their spouse might have died as well. And so this also has huge important public policy consequences. Nursing home care is extremely, extremely expensive in the United States. Um, And we have seen over the past 10 years ago, uh, 10 years or so, a shift in money being spent on nursing homes to money spent and being allocated to people so they can spend more time living independently at home. So whether that means having children come in and take care of their parents 
or whether that means having home health care aides come in. Um, it's a much cheaper way to take, pe- take care of people with health needs. Um, and it's also the preference, the overwhelming preference of older people. Men and women predominantly want to stay in their homes. They do not want to live in a nursing home or uh, receive that type of care. So, but have we, what about the question of do people want to stay with each other given those set of circumstances? I mean, that's an issue that keeps coming up, at least in in some of the people that I interview and also with the family and and colleagues. The amount of time and the devotion or, you know, that it takes to care for someone and people end up not wanting to do that. And particularly if you have someone who is ill and staying in your home. And you have spouses who are like, I'm not in it for this. This is not something I want to do. And they, yeah, is that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so for the majority of people that I spoke with, they weren't in that situation yet. So they were in their 50s and 60s. So they weren't in a, a state where their spouse needed a lot of, whether that be physical or emotional uh, assistance at that point in their life. But I do think that it is really an, a, really an important issue to think about that ultimately, you know, down the road, somebody's, you know, people get sick. That's what happens. And, you know, there, there is some research that does suggest that men in particular, when a woman gets sick, their wife gets sick, this becomes very, very difficult for them to handle. And they're much less likely than women, for example, to want to take care of their ailing spouse. Jocelyn, do you think that we need to sort of re-examine our expectations for long-term marriages or, or marriages that perhaps, you know, they're maybe so they're there won't be as many, let's say, divorces or gray divorces. They're, they're going to happen, absolutely. And I, I think right. that that's something, obviously, we have to deal with. But maybe our expectations for marriage are unrealistic. Maybe, uh, you know, monogamy is not going to work for 70 years. And uh, whether, you know, it's not, whether you're having sex, uh, you know, with somebody in person or you're on the net. Uh, right. I mean, that's just right. one example. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's two sides to the coin of that. I think that definitely you have a point. So, like way back in the day when there was a life expectancy of 30 years, you know, maybe you could expect people to stay together for for their entire lifespan. Um, so now we have people living longer, and you know, people do change over time. You know, I guess I would say that I tend to be more of a hopeless romantic. I tend to be. A person who thinks of, you know, this is something that you really, that you should hopefully think a lot about. I do think that there needs to be a lot of a more premarital education, you know, what, so people know exactly what they're getting into, so that people know that, you know, when you're going to get married, you should, before you get married, you should think about money, you should think about children, you should think about lifestyle and priorities. So I think that that definitely needs to be more emphasized than it is currently. But I, on, the, on the idealistic note, I still am a person who thinks, you know, ideally, I think marriage should be for life. You know, get the right people together, give them the right education prior to getting married, and hopefully also encourage them to seek out counseling if and when they do go through some marital bumps. And we know that that most marriages are going to go through bumps. 
Well, that is excellent advice. We have 30 seconds left and a great book, a wonderful conversation. Uh, So I want to mention the book again, Gray Divorce, What We Lose and Gain from Midlife Splits. And that's Jocelyn Crowley, PhD. You can buy the book on Amazon, bookstores, everywhere. And I recommend go out and get it because we talked a lot about what's in the book, but there's a lot more to talk about. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Dennis Charney, Dean of the Mount Sinai Icons. School of Medicine in New York City, and his uh, new book is Resilience, the Science Behind Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. While devoting his research and career to studying neurobiology, anxiety, and resiliency, Dr. Dennis Charney survived a shotgun wound to the shoulder by a disgruntled former colleague. He discusses in his new book the science of resilience and his own personal experience by providing a guide to building emotional, mental, and physical resilience and identifying 10 key resilience factors that are all shared by all highly resilient survivors. Dr. Charney, President for Academic Affairs also at Mount Sinai Health Center, a health system, has written more than 700 publications and is named one of the world's most influential scientific minds by Thompson Reuters in 2015. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, doctor. I'm happy to be with you. 
Well, in, in Dr. Charney, uh, resiliency or resilience has become somewhat of a buzzword, I would say, in the past couple of years. But you've been studying it for the, at least for the past 25 years. So first question is, what is resiliency and what are those 10 key resiliency factors that are shared by very highly resilient people? Yes. So uh, the definition of resilience that we use is that um, if somebody's been traumatized uh, or they're facing a big challenge in their life, that uh, they move through it in a positive way and they don't develop problems with depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse, or if they do, they recover from it. In other words, they, they bounce back. And so, you know, yes, we've been studying resilience for about 25 years. My colleague in, in this endeavor is uh, Dr. Stephen Southwick, professor at Yale. And we started studying resilience because we were working to understand the causes of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and working to develop new treatments for those conditions. And we thought, what if we study people who have been traumatized but, but rose above it? In other words, that they were resilient. Could we learn from them, uh, you know, what it takes to be resilient? And so we started with an open mind uh, to learn from such individuals. And we've ended up studying hundreds, maybe even thousands of resilient people. It's been a life-changing experience for us. Uh, we studied the POWs from Vietnam, uh, the Navy SEALs, uh, uh, victims of poverty and abuse, sexual and, and physical, uh, all different ethnic groups around the world, uh, people who were faced with congenital uh, disease. And, and through all that work over many years, uh, we identified some common factors that characterize uh, the resilient person. And if you want, I can go through some of those factors. Yeah, let's talk about some of those factors, but maybe in the context of the actual people, because you've interviewed thousands of people, as you say, um, in in in, uh, in relation to those specific examples of the trauma that individuals suffered. You know what I'm saying? You may, sure. You've talked about very good. Well, I, I, I can even relate yeah. it to myself. So, All right, let's talk you know, about you personally, because you got attacked or assaulted by, or actually shot at, right, by a... a yeah. Yeah, by a colleague. Well, okay, let's start with you. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I'm studying resilience uh, for decades, as you mentioned, and then in late August 2016, I was coming out of a local deli where I live in New York, and all of a sudden I heard a loud boom and saw that I was bleeding um, from my upper right side, my shoulder, and my chest, and it turns out that I was hit with a shotgun blast from about 20 feet. Uh, from by a person who we had uh, terminated uh, from Mount Sinai uh, Medical School because of scientific misconduct. Seven years before, I had no contact with him. I barely knew him, but obviously he had become obsessed uh, with me and tracked me down and shot me. And luckily, um, the shotgun pellets missed vital organs and uh, vital uh, vessels, Although I did lose half my blood, I ended up being transferred to um, a, tr a trauma center close by and then to Mount Sinai, uh, where I was in the intensive care unit uh, for five days and then started uh, my recovery. So, you know, at that point, I 
thought to myself, you know, I've studied resilience for many years, and now I need to walk the walk myself to show that I was uh, resilient and also got to test out the, uh, what we had learned. About I was going to say, it's your own research. Yep. Is there a difference? I just want to interrupt you for a minute. Like, that was a total surprise to you. You said you didn't know him. You maybe knew of him, but this is yep. not somebody that you were necessarily afraid of or that there would be any repercussions related to you and his losing his job. Is that different than, let's say, somebody who maybe gets diagnosed with a, uh, a an illness, a terminal illness, or somebody who goes even to war because there is an expectation that you are going to get hurt and you know who the enemy is, um, or is it, is it the same in terms of the impact of the trauma? It has a lot of common elements. Uh, we've studied, as, as you allude to, uh, uh, warriors, uh, soldiers, uh, people who are victim of crimes, people who face poverty. So we've studied all sorts of different uh, traumas, but there's a common element, you know, that, that you are traumatized, uh, that you are hurt, uh, that you're facing a fear. And, and so my trauma of being shot, even though it was unexpected, in fact, in some ways, the fact that it was unexpected made it even a bigger trauma, uh, had a lot of similarities to uh, the victims, the trauma victims that we studied over many years. So in your case, you get shot, you're taken to the trauma uh hospital and then to Sinai. So what happened? I mean, were you, well, I guess, what was your first emotional experience and reaction to all of this? So my first experience was, uh, wow, I wasn't expecting this to happen in my life. And, and then it was a, a focused on recovery and setting uh, goals. Right after I got shot, I, I ran back into the deli and somebody said, you're going to be all right. And then I thought to myself, wait, he's not a doctor. How does he know? <laughs> and, and then I did, a, and then, but I said, I'm a doctor. So I did a little back in the envelope evaluation of myself while I was bleeding heavily. I didn't lose consciousness and I, I was thinking, okay. So I thought, you know, I'm probably going to be okay. I'm probably going to survive this. And then, as I mentioned, I went to the ICU and that started my uh, recovery. Uh, from the beginning, I set goals for myself of uh, what I was going to accomplish in my recovery, and that's helpful. And we, I found that with a lot of the trauma victims. All right. So, so let's say you have those. Te- you obviously did recover. You're one of those highly resilient people. And so, did you go down the checklist of like the ten factors? Do I have? I mean, were you exa- You know, is there a lot of self awareness? Like. Or maybe thinking, I don't really have it in me with some of this stuff. I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, so like, say, taking some of those, the 10 factors that you describe. Yep. And, yeah. yeah. So I can, do, I can kind of relate that. So right from the beginning, I felt confident that I was going to show that I was going to be resilient. But I, I, I took a lot of effort to do that. Uh, it's easy to say that when you're traumatized, that you are going to be resilient, but once you are traumatized, it's hard. And it, it does require a lot of effort. So what, one thing we found in uh, all our studies that optimism uh, is a very important part of being resilient. And, and not false optimism, not Pollyanna optimism, but optimism based on your prior experience in life that you have the tools. We call it a psychological toolbox that you're going to you're going to recover or you're going to face down 
uh, this challenge, that you feel you can do it, and you have a belief in a positive uh, future. And I found that helped myself. I tend to be an optimistic, uh, positive person, um, and so that was helpful to me. And I, I found, yes, you know, the identification that optimism is important, I found in myself. Another how before you go on to the next one, I just yeah. want to ask you, what about in terms of your own optimism? How important was it for you to have social support, um, you know, to support you in your in that that in that attitude and having a, an optimistic attitude? Was it important to have other people supporting you? Or? It was it was absolutely critical, and that's another factor that we identified that uh, social support. Um, we call it having a tap code because the. Prisoners of war in Vietnam developed a tap code in which they they tapped on the wall and they had a code in which they could communicate with each other. And they found that if they didn't have that ability to communicate with each other during the seven years that they were held, it, uh, they probably wouldn't have made it psychologically. So everybody needs sincere social support. In other words, a tap code. And I had that. Um, I wanted to get transferred to Mount Sinai as soon as possible because I knew I was going to get tremendous support from the faculty and the students, and I did. And I have a very loving family. I have five children, and um, and they were there with me and along with some very close friends right from uh, day one getting into the intensive care unit. Uh, so that was critical in how I dealt with things right away and also in the recovery process. Everybody needs say- a tap code. So what if everybody doesn't have one? What would you say to people? I mean, you not only have your five children and your family, you are also in a hospital that that's, represents you. I mean, you're at home, and most people don't have that. Let's start with that. So what would one do? How do you access some of those support systems if you don't have them there right away? Well, when, yeah. yeah, so there's a couple things related to that. One, there are other uh, ways of getting support if it's if you don't have it in your immediate a family. Uh, there are v- various kinds of support groups, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, like uh, support groups for people uh, fighting uh, cancer. And, and so you do want to seek out other kinds of support, which generally are available if you don't have it in your immediate family. And related to that is having role models, you know, that, that people that you can emulate who are going through or have gone through things that you've gone through, and, and they can provide a roadmap for you in, in your recovery. Uh, I had role models in my life, you know, people that I got to know, that, beyond my immediate family and students and so forth. And they included the people that I studied in our resilience work, that I called upon what I had learned from them to help me in my own recovery. So everybody who's facing a trauma needs to identify role models that they can emulate. So that's an example of a lot of different resources that people can turn to. Interesting that you turn to uh, someone or maybe many people who also had been resilient in terms of whatever happened to them in their trauma. Was there anyone in particular that was really helpful to you? They were No one person in general can... Uh, role model for you, you want to take kind of the the best or the most pertinent aspects of multiple uh, people. So in my own case, I, I 
found that the POWs from Vietnam, uh, who were incredibly resilient people, um, I started remembering what they went through, how they were injured, uh, how, how they were in solitary confinement. Uh, I had to deal with a serious uh, gunshot wound, but I wasn't in prison for eight years. So I started to think of what they told me about how they uh, recovered. Um, I, I started thinking about the people that, as part of being a doctor and, and being a dean, that I saw how they had recovered and how they had set goals for themselves and push, push forward in a very uh, consistent and hard way. So I had multiple role models that were very helpful to me. So let's go on to some of the other factors. We've mentioned yep. a couple. What about, yeah, what, because there are 10 of them. Um, yep. Probably, yeah. So next, you hear that you're in the hospital. Obviously, you have to be optimistic. You have your support system. You know how to access support. Then what do you do? Or what did you do? Yeah, so um, another factor we found is, is moral compass, ethics, altruism, giving back. And I found that very important to me, uh, I have a set of beliefs about myself and my life that very few things can shatter. And I, I wanted to make sure that, that none of those feelings about life and purpose in life were shattered by the shankat, uh, shotgun wound I, that I received. And, and so that was very helpful to me. In fact, in my case, I didn't hate my assailant. I, I didn't want to hate my assailant. I didn't want to use up energy, brain energy and physical energy in general about hating him. And so I focused on the positive about what kind of person I was and was going to be as opposed to ruminating about what had happened to me. So I found that very helpful. And I, I think other trauma victims have found that helpful, those that we have uh, studied. Uh, I didn't second guess about you know why I got shot. So, for example, if if a woman has been uh, raped, the most important thing for her or him is to move forward and not feel guilty. Um, to find role models and moving forward, to still have relationships that are important to them and not have that devastated by the rape experience. So having a moral compass. And, and being and moving forward in an altruistic way uh, was very important to me, and that's what we had observed. In, in fact, several months after I'd been shot, the, our medical students named an award in my honor um, called the Dean Charney Award for Resilience, and I have gotten many awards in my career. That's the most important that I've ever gotten because it meant that I had an impact going forward and kept my own moral compass. So that, that's an important feature yeah, of resilience. Really, yeah, your medical students uh, giving you that honor, I would assume, would be the most important one that's or most inspiring, too, as well. Do you think it's like you didn't know? I keep Maybe I'm going back to this again, but you didn't really know your assailant, and you're giving the example, let's say, a woman being raped. What if you're, the trauma is someone rapes you who you trusted, who you loved, who was a father or a sister or a brother or somebody that you knew? Yeah. It's more difficult, it would seem to me, to be able to sort of separate yourself from that person and kind of seek a higher level. I don't know. It if is that's more difficult. You... Yeah. Um, I knew of my assailant. Uh, I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew of what he had 
done as a scientist and had to make the decision to terminate him. And, and so I, when I did that, there was some face-to-face contact, but it, he wasn't somebody I knew well. And you're right, if, if you're abused by uh, somebody you knew well, like intimate uh, trauma, uh, that's harder. That's a lot harder uh, to overcome. It's possible to overcome, but it's harder. And that's where you need other role models and other people in your life uh, that then you can learn to trust again. Were there points in, in, in your recovery, both physical and mental, that you maybe, and I, I'm using the word regressed, or you felt like maybe I'm really not up to this? This is much more difficult than I thought. You know, I've been studying this, doing the research as an academic, as a professional, as a physician, but now it's happening to me, and I'm not sure I can get through this. I didn't really feel that way. I knew it was going to be tough. Um, so I, I didn't focus on the negative. You know, there were times I would be unsatisfied with my progress, uh, you know, physically. I did get to, back to work in two weeks uh, after the shooting, even though I lost half my blood and was pretty seriously injured. Uh, but I pushed forward in a way, so I kept getting positive uh, reinforcement. Uh, so I was, I was lucky in that way because I had so much support. And physically, ultimately, I was going to recover, although it took about nine months. But I didn't have a, I didn't second guess that I wasn't going to recover. Okay. So your expectations were, I'm getting better, and that's what I'm going to do. What about yep. PTSD in the context of what happened to you? Like, um, did that happen at all? I, I didn't develop uh, PTSD, but I had some symptoms of PTSD. So when I first came home, I had to stay in a hospital bed on the first floor of my house. And I didn't want to sleep in the dark for a while. Uh, I didn't think the the assailant was in jail, so I didn't think that was going to happen. But I just felt on edge, and sleeping at night in the dark was a problem. There was some sadness of, why did this happen to me? Um, It was never in the game plan. So I had some symptoms of PTSD and depression, not reaching... A, you know, a clinical diagnosis. Uh, whenever I heard a loud noise, it reminded me of the shotgun blast that hit me. I had trouble watching shows on TV that involved violence, you know, for a couple of months. So I had some symptoms related to uh, PTSD, but I didn't have the full spectrum. And, and there were, it sounds like, some irrational fears, but you were aware of that, and they dissipated after. Well, after the nine months... Did the did those emotional feelings um, dissipate, or, or just the physical, or both? I mean, you said like, did you feel like in nine months I'm cured? I've resist, you know, I've been, I've been resilient. I am resilient to this trauma, and, and it's sort of life is normal again. Not exactly, you know. So, so once you're a trauma victim, you're always a trauma victim. You have to incorporate that into who you now are. Um, you you can take that experience and move it in some positive directions that ordinarily would have not happened. Like, for example, in my case, I felt it was important now that I could be a role model uh, for other people who've been traumatized. In, in fact, um, th- there was a situation here in New York City where there was an act of violence at Bronx Lebanon Hospital where a disgruntled former physician came into the hospital 
and shot a number of people, including some doctors. And, and two of those doctors were transferred to Mount Sinai because they had very complicated wounds. And one of the doctors was feeling a lot of anxiety, a young doctor in training and stress. And so they asked me to come and see him uh, because they, the, his treatise thought, given my experience, that I could be helpful to him. And so I went to see him, and I said to him when I walked in to his room, I said, I may be the dean, but you and I are brothers. I know what you're going through. I went through it. And I was able to share my own experience with him and help him and talk to him about what he was going to go through and how he was going to recover. So, you know, the message there is that while I'm always be a trauma victim, I can utilize my experience in a positive way to help others. Yeah, and you're certainly in that setting. You're in a hospital, so you have you have all the tools besides as you know the scientific experience. I think we mentioned that in the book, and also the the personal. We only have a couple minutes left, so what do we want to leave people with? First of all, the title of your book again, Resilience: The Science Behind Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. And I'm talking to Dr. Dennis Charney, Dean of the Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. Uh, there's so much more in the book, obviously, that we didn't get a chance to cover today. Um, you, can you buy it on, you can buy it on Amazon bookstores everywhere. Um, and are there opportunities for the general public to hear you lecture about trauma? Yes. Well, first the book is available, you know, everywhere, Amazon and so forth. Uh, what I, what I would add is that I'm a trauma victim myself. And so, you know, when we did all this work, I wasn't a trauma victim. And now I can, uh, you know, verify that what we found makes a difference. Now, and I do give talks uh, fairly frequently, and my talks have changed from when I would talk before on resilience because now I, I allude to what I went through, and it adds a certain validity uh, to the research yeah. that, yes, this makes a difference. You can make yourself a more resilient person. Uh, to, we ultimately have challenges in our life. We lose loved ones. We face illness as we get older. And so this can be helpful to, to everybody. Absolutely. The longer we live, and we are living longer, and sometimes better, we're going to have, as you say, some kind of trauma probably happen to anyone, to all of us. Um, so it's not that it's not going to happen, but it's how you handle it when it does happen, resiliency. Um, doctors, thank you so much for being on the show this morning um, and also telling your story. Um, Good luck with the book, and I recommend it to everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.